I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. I'm glad I'm not seriously competitive anymore because this is the worst thing you can possibly do is undermine all your beliefs in the things that make you faster. I think there are very few people walking on this planet who could say, yeah, that time I ran, my best time, that's as, as fast as my genes could permit me to run. Running has prepared me well for the idea that even if everything I'm dreaming of comes true, life will go on the next day and I'll have to think of other dreams because you, you, can't, just, you, you can't just sort of float on that cloud indefinitely. Hey, man. How's your sexual function? Oh, uncomfortable talking about it? Look, we talk about our injured knees, our belly fat, so it's time to get focused on function. I want to tell you about Gainswave. This is a cutting-edge protocol where a handheld device sends low-intensity shock waves into your penile blood vessels to stimulate a healing response and promote increased blood circulation and the growth of new blood vessels. A skilled practitioner puts the Gainswave magic wand onto your magic wand, and after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results. Gainswave reports an 80% success rate. Now, we know that popping pills is a popular penile protocol, but when you're working with clogged pipes, you just get a temporary Band-Aid effect when you take prescription drugs. Gainswave addresses the cause of age-related decline by stimulating growth factors and activating dormant stem cells. Translation, stronger, harder, more sustainable erections. I learned about Gainswave from my podcast guest, Dr. Judson Brandeis at the Brandeis MD Clinic in Northern California, and there's a robust network of Gainswave providers that you can find on their website near you. Complete a series of treatments, and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment, and while it's great for ED, Gainswave is for any man that wants to combat the effects of aging and get a little boost for your A-game. So please visit Gainswave.com slash Brad. That's G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E dot com slash B-R-A-D to find a practitioner in your area, and you can take advantage of my special promotion, buy six treatments, and get one free. You have nothing to lose and lots to gain from gainswave.com slash Brad. Hey, listeners, welcome to a very interesting and fast-moving conversation with Alex Hutchinson, the best-selling author of the wonderful book Endure. He's a very popular columnist in Outside Magazine covering topics related to sweat science. That's right. He is the expert on the scientific aspects of peak performance and the human limitations, especially relating to endurance. And I spend a fair amount of time at the start of the show having him recount his most extraordinary story of amazing improvement breakthroughs in his own running career as a middle distance runner uh, in college. Uh, you're not going to believe some of these insights that are going to pull out and they'll be really memorable. I can't stop thinking about his story when I first heard about it. I had to have him on the show, and we get into all kinds of aspects, including the popular central governor theory promoted by Dr. Timothy Noakes, uh, which proposes that the brain is the true limiter of peak performance, not the fatigue that's happening in our muscles, in our extremities. And um, We also transition into talking about 
the ultimate limits of human performance, especially as it relates to the current world records and all the technological breakthroughs, as well as the training breakthroughs, where we're headed in the future. And I'll tee him up a little further with an excerpt from his book description about Endure, where Hutchinson reveals that a wave of paradigm-altering research over the past decade suggests that the seemingly physical barriers you encounter are mediated as much by your brain as much by your body. It's not all in your head. For each of the physical limits that Hutchinson explores, pain, muscle, oxygen, heat, thirst, and fuel, he carefully disentangles the delicate interplay of mind and muscle by telling the riveting stories of men and women who've approached and sometimes surpassed their own ultimate limits. And there's great stories about the explorers that went to the South Pole, uh, Asmundson, uh, 100 plus years ago, and then recent efforts to kind of duplicate these amazing feats that you uh, hear about in the history books. And I also like how uh, he blends that mind and body insights where it's not all in your head, but a lot of it is. And if you, uh, for example, adopt a more empowering positive attitude about the Uh, journey that you're on, the exercise that you're doing, the workout that you're trying to finish, instead of feeling negative about it and wishing it for it to be over, you can say, boy, isn't the fresh air and this beautiful scenery uh, wonderful? What a great way to spend my day. And thereby, you reduce your perceived exertion and you prolong your endurance. It's pretty awesome. So let's hear from Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson, I'm so glad to connect with you. And we have all kinds of important stuff to talk about. Um, hopefully listeners are familiar with your wonderful book, Endure, and read your columns in Outside Magazine and Runner's World. That's the main place we're seeing these uh, regular features. Uh, these days, Outside is the main place, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I was with Runner's World for a while, but, any, but yeah, anyway, Outside, and, and thank you for having me on, Brad. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So this concept of human endurance and all the aspects and attributes about that that you covered so nicely in your book, I think we have some important things to talk about, but I can't think of a better way to set the stage than to ask you to uh, recap your amazing journey in distance running where you became quite a serious runner, uh, but the breakthroughs uh, are to the level that I've never heard about of any other human ever. And it turns out you're the guy studying this. So I think you're going to have to, you're going to have to wind us up, man, and take us back to your high school and college days in Canada, uh, pursuing your, your dream of becoming a middle distance runner. Yeah. I mean, I started out in high school, uh, like a lot of people do and, and, uh, running initially middle distance, like 1500 meters. And the big dream at that point was the, the, call it the metric four minute mile. Uh, I, I wanted to run four minutes for 1500 meters, which is a, a, about call it 17 seconds shorter than a mile. So it's, I was not trying to be Roger Bannister, my own version of Roger Bannister. And I ran 402 in my, my second year of high school running. And I could plot out the trajectory, right? I could see that I was going to roll well under four minutes the next year and, you know, make the Olympics the year after that and set the world right. You know, I had, I had it all plotted out, but I, I hit a, a plateau uh, pretty quickly. I, I ran between four flat and 402 for what turned out to be four straight years, um, which took me to my junior year of college. And so, you know, when I talk about human limits and, and discovering where you, the, the outer uh, bounds of your potential are, that's that really goes back to that feeling that I had in high school and, and college where it's like, okay, I know I've, I've been training pretty hard for four years now. I've been doing the mileage, I've been hitting the weight room, I've been doing the speed work. I've been lying awake at night reading books about running, 
And I keep <laughs> running about four minutes for 1500, just over four minutes. So I was, I was very confident that I could get under four minutes that I could run that 359. But I definitely had the sense that that was about what my body was capable of, that there wasn't a whole lot more in the tank. And so the, the, the turning point for me was a race in my junior year of college, not, a, not an important race, not a significant race, but just another race where I was going to go out and try and get that 359.9. And uh, it was an indoor race, so 200 meter track. Uh, the gun went off and I took off into the lead trying to run my, my, uh, my pace. And I went through the first 200 meters in, you know, the timekeepers there at the start line calling out splits. And I went through the first 227 seconds, which for, for anyone who's uh, done any track running knows it, that's pretty fast. And it's a hell of a lot faster than you want to be running if you're trying to run four minutes for 1500, which is 32 second pace. And, and I had this, I still can remember the, the sort of moment of like, whoa, that's way too fast. And yet, whoa, I, I feel pretty good. I actually feel under control. So, you know, I was just trying to stay calm, stay cool, came through the second lap in 57 seconds, which again is way too fast. Um, but I felt just really, really under control and good. The same thing happened third lap. And so I had this, I, I can I can also remember, this is, this is a race that took place in 1996. I'm, I'm an old guy now. Um, but I can still remember that, that mid-race kind of decision of, or, or the realization that something special was happening and that I needed to kind of stop listening to splits, stop think, overthinking things and just run because I was having a very, very special day. Um, and it, it, it turned out to be a special day. I ran 352.4, which was a, a nine second or, you know, almost nine second personal best. And what happened afterwards was that, the, I mean, so that was cool in and of itself, like nine seconds is a, is a lot, but what happened afterwards is I was chatting to a teammate who had taken my splits for me so that I, you know, as being a typical distance runner, I was ready to record the splits in my log and analyze them and plot them in Lotus one, two, three, and all that stuff. Mm. And, uh, and I, you know, I said, can you believe I ran the first lap in 27? He said, no, you didn't. What are you talking about? You ran the first lap in like 30 or 31. And anyway, to cut to the, sorry, I'm making this a long story, but to cut to the chase, the timekeeper had probably missed the start or something like that and was giving me the wrong splits. And so when he was telling me I'd gone out in 27, he, he, he was creating this impression in my mind that I was running really fast with less effort than normal. Whereas in reality, <laughs> I, I, was, I was running pretty fast with pretty you know, moderate effort, but he, he kind of tricked me into thinking I was having the best day of my life. And as a result, I kind of unshackled myself from the, my, my prior expectations and I just ran. And, and, and all of a sudden I had a nine second personal best. And then you know, the postscript is that in the race after that, I ran 349. And after that, I ran 344. And it was like a kind of tap had been turned on. And, you know, honestly, I wish I could recapture that, mm -hmm. that sort of sequence of events. You know, if I, if I could have bottled that, I would have gotten a lot faster. But I didn't, you know, I, I eventually hit another plateau. And it's not as knowing that there are such things as mental barriers doesn't mean it's easy to, to turn them off. But it definitely... That, that one race in 1996, I think, is what set me on a path that ended up with the book I published in 2018, Endure, because I've, I've been fascinated ever since, but trying to understand what, what defines our limits and, and knowing that, what defi that it's not just a formula, you know, it's not a VO2 max test, it's not that there's, mm -hmm. that there's a lot more in there that just defines what we're capable of. In other words, you're still trying to figure it out uh, 20 plus years later. We, we still don't know what happened to this guy. Um, yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm even, in some ways, I'm even more confused than I was then. I, I you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the less you know, the more you think you know. And so the, the, the deeper I've gotten into it, the more I've realized that there's a, a lot still to learn for sure. 
um, that's the sign of a good scientist when you, uh, you keep heading toward more realization that you, you realize how little you know. So congratulations there. Yeah. Instead <laughs> yeah, of here, here's Alex who knows everything about endurance and performance limitations. Let's hear from him. No, no. It, he's, it he's, would be nice. Yeah, be yeah. Nice, um, so I want to set the context there. When you're a around a four minute, 1500 meter runner, that is a, I'd say very good high school level, uh, probably national caliber Canada, or, you know, in, in America, you'd be one of the top guys in the state and you'd be looking at a college career. And then, you know, hopefully they were hoping you would improve. But if you're running four minutes in college, you're a pretty good and very highly trained runner. So it's not someone who's jumping into their, um, their, their second race and getting a nine second PR. So there was absolutely no, um, there was no dream of anyone at your already pretty fast level popping out a nine second PR. And I've heard yeah, I you're, mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it just does unheard of. So, I mean, yeah, to sort of expand on that context, when I started running, I think I ran my, uh, you know, I, like everyone else, I ran, you know, untrained stuff in, in early high school. And then I, I had showed some promise. I joined a track club and in Canada track clubs are, are fairly common outside of high school. And I ran, I think I ran like 444, 445 for my first race. And then I got some training in and I ran 428. And this is all within one season. And then I went to the city finals and I ran 419. And then I went to the regionals and I ran 417. And then I went to the provincial finals, which is our equivalent state finals. And I ran 413 in the heats and 408 in the in the final. Mm-hmm. So there was this sort of 20 seconds over the course of, uh, um, you know, a month, let's say that's not mysterious. That's, that's training. That's learning how to race. That's, that's, that's very, very common. But as you say, once you've, once you've been training for a while, the, 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 the fruits become much harder to grasp. And I always say, you know, whenever I'm talking to people and whenever someone comes up to me and they say, Oh yeah, I had an okay race. It was a, it was a best time, but only by a second. I'm like, never, never take a, a best time for granted because they get a lot, the, the, the farther you get in the sport, the harder they are to get. Mm. And so by the time I was running four minute, you know, 402 for 1500. I've been training with a track club for a few years. I've been, uh, you know, running six or seven days a week, doing interval workouts with a very good coach who knew what he was doing. So I, I wasn't just sort of bumbling, bumbling along and discovering the, the, uh, the, the sort of secrets of life. And in fact, you know, so I told this story in my book, right. And so pe- people have heard it. And my, my old high school coach, when he read it, he's like, mm. you know, trying to remember those days surely there were some signs in your in your training that you were ready for a big breakthrough and i was like well you know you can always find you know if you look carefully enough you can say oh maybe that will work out suggest something but look i'll give you my training logs i'll take out my training logs. you tell me if you think i was ready to get 17 seconds faster over the course of a few weeks so i gave him my old training logs and he he took them home actually he still has them i used to give them back to me but anyway he took them home and uh he you know we chatted a couple weeks later and I said, so, well, you know, what's the deal? And he said, yeah, you know, the, there was no like, what, so before I had my breakthrough, it was clear I was ready to run under four minutes. So I was run, I was working out better than a four minute guy, but I was not working out like a 344 guy, which I ended up. So it's like I went from slightly underperforming to dramatically. <laughs> but it was the change wasn't that I started working out better. I'd been working out at that level for a year or two without, without any, there was no obvious sign in the, in the training that something had changed. Right. So you were you were stuck running slower than you, quote unquote, should based on your impressive training log. 
Yeah, no, I, I, not a ton, I would say. Like the trainings that I should have probably run, you know, under maybe 355, 358, 357, something like, like under four minutes. I was I was never like a hero trainer or anything. And, I, mm -hmm. and you know, that's a um, that's another topic, obviously. Right. I, 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 I don't think this is necessarily a good thing to be a hero trainer. Like I think it's a good good thing to sort of keep your powder dry. But um, yeah, there was, I, would, I, I think people thought I should be ready to break four, but breaking four and running 352 are two different things. Uh, interesting. I didn't know about your early progression from novice and then down to a provincial finalist. So uh, that's very interesting because you had this pattern uh, wired into your brain of a guy who just kept knocking, you know, slashing the clock, even though it was, um, as you described, expected when someone starts putting on uh, the shoes and running around a track and practicing, you expect that, but you did have that reference point somewhere in the recesses of your consciousness that it, it's already happened. So here it goes again with the nine second PR, and then you didn't rest there. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it's probably connected why to the fact that First of all, I kept training at a at a very serious level with running as one of the most important things in my life in my life into my 30s, and I'm 46 now, and I'm still training every day. I think it reminds me of those that you know they did those conditioning experiments with like rats or whatever, or I, I'm, I'm maybe not just right, like the psychology experiments, long, you know, half a century ago, where they find the the best way to get a rat to keep pressing a lever is not that five presses gives you a nugget of food. It's that an, an unpredictable, every once in a while you hit the jackpot. Mm. And this is the way casino slot machines are designed too. It's like mm. the unpredictable. So I had this hardwired into me that you just keep training. Sometimes it seems like nothing is happening. And every once in a while, bam, you, you hit a hot streak. And you, so I kept waiting and waiting and waiting to go, you know, to, to get another more hot streaks and to go on another tear, because I've had this happen a few times where it's like, you're, you're, you're in a plateau, you're in a plateau. Then once you finally break through, you know, when it rains, it pours. And so, yeah, maybe I'm uh, like the, the, the rat in the cage there expecting the, the, the big reward nugget at some point. Tristan Harris calls it intermittent variable rewards. And that's why slot machines are so addicting. And I guess perhaps running, especially in your case, not for most runners, because they don't have these incredible breakthroughs. They're not too common, but uh, that's interesting. It, you know, it kept you in the game. And that's I guess it, we should... Yeah. Yeah, uh, we should talk about your time progression there. So you were a pretty good college runner, and then you shattered the barriers with that um, 352. But then to take it in a matter of weeks, now all of a sudden you're national class and you're lining up with the Canadian heroes and Olympians. So um, that part, how do how do you um, how do you justify going from? what you you finally hit your potential and maybe even better than your predicted potential. And now you're in the stratosphere somehow. That was a really interesting experience. Um, and did you get totally full of yourself swagger around campus with the gold chain now, all of a sudden, how did that go in your, in your yeah, uh, psychology? The gold chain that I'm wearing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it, it's interesting because, you know, to, again, to put, go back to the context of as a 401 guy, I had big dreams. We all have big dreams. I, I went to bed every night dreaming big dreams. Mm. But those big dreams were like someday I'll run 353 or 354 or 355. And so all of a sudden I ran 344. And that, that race was, I mean, there's a whole story to that race too, because that's another big gap to go from 349 to 344. Um, I was in the fast heat of a meet where I should have been. Everyone else was in the, it was a, a meet held at my university. And I remember showing up a few hours before the race and looking at the heat sheets posted on the wall and seeing that I was in the faster heat. And there were a couple guys 
standing there reading the heat sheets and they were saying, what the hell is Hutchinson doing in this fast heat? What the hell? I run faster. We should be, you know, like the people were angry about that because my coach was the meet director and was, had put me in the fast heat ahead of a bunch of guys who were faster than me. And so when I stepped to the line that day, you know, this is a different element of psychology. Mm. It's like my, my, I was like, I have to finish second last. I have to finish second last. So that I just, so that I'm not the one who mm. should have been in the last heat. And so I ran in dead last in that race for 1200 meters. And then with 300 meters to go in the race, I did a little internal check and was like, Hey, I've still got fuel to burn. And I passed about eight people in the last 300 meters. And, and it was a, you know, a huge race like almost probably more surprising than the 352 in, in a lot of ways it's harder it's, it's harder to explain but you know as you know 344 is a different world than 352 uh, more so than 352 to 401 mm. and so that actually this, <laughs> exponentially more so of yeah, course because yeah, yeah. now you're bumping up against olympic caliber playing yeah well so this was and this was in the mid 90s which let's let me another important piece of context is people were slower in the mid 90s so so mm. um these days 344 would not you know wouldn't get you uh, a ticket to any big meets but at the time in canada which is a small country it had qualified me for the olympic trials a few weeks later and so i found myself suddenly you know two months ago i was a 401 guy now i'm stepping to the start line against the canadian record holder I'm, and there's a you know i guess i mentioned this in the book there's a youtube video of the 1996 canadian olympic trials and i'm on the start line next to my absolute hero graham hood who's made the Olympic finals already. Uh, you know, he's an Olympic finalist, defending Olympic finalist. I am just absolutely petrified. And and the way that worked out is I ran like a hunk of crap mm. in the in the Olympic finals. I made the I made out of the semis, I made it to the final, but I ran like junk. I, I was just I didn't yet believe that I belonged. Mm. And and I came back 12 months later. It took me that long to be like, no, I've run these times in the low 340s. I belong here. And the next time I, uh, the next year I came fourth in, at the national championships and that, and I wasn't necessarily all that much fitter, but I, I, I ran with confidence instead of running scared out of my mind and thinking that I didn't belong with those people. I guess it's hard for a lot of endurance athletes, myself included to, um, buy into this idea that our, mindset is holding us back because I know what that last lap feels like, or that last mile, three miles of the marathon or whatever your reference point is where you say, no, there's no way I could have gone any farther. And uh, this is how well I'm trained and so forth. Um, But this opens up, I think, a whole bunch of avenues for discussion. Uh, The central governor theory that's been popularized by Dr. Tim Noakes and that you covered nicely in your book. Um, It's really fascinating to me. Um, that the brain is, uh, is suggested that it's the ultimate arbiter of performance limitation rather than that your muscles actually got tired and your lower back cramped and this and that. Um, so I'd love to just get going on that discussion. And also, um, let's say it is true and we all have reference points where we had these amazing breakthroughs and we made it to the top of the mountain, even though we were tired and it was pouring rain. Uh, but then how do you balance that insight with day-to-day regulation of your energy so you don't get overtrained and burnt out. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and I'll be back in 15 minutes because exactly. I just teed you up big time. <laughs> the, yeah. I was just going to say, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is that I is to agree with what you said about it being difficult to certainly for, for me. And I think for a lot of other 
uh, people to, to really, really, truly believe that, yeah, the thoughts in your head are going to affect your performance because nothing feels as objectively real and true as the feeling of muscular fatigue or, or you know, at, at, at the end of a race, you don't feel like, oh, I could have chosen to gone faster. Like, especially once you, once you've trained for a certain amount of time and you, you're highly motivated and you're starting a race thinking, you know, I would, I would stab myself with a needle to, you know, or with the, I should say safety pin. So it doesn't sound like I'm doping myself. I would stab myself with a safety pin <laughs> if, if, if that would be, would make me run faster. I don't like, I'm willing to accept all pain. And then in the end of the race, you're going as hard as you can and you just couldn't go any faster. So then someone comes up to you and said, boy, maybe if you thought, thinking, you know, positive thoughts, you would have gone faster. You're like, what are you talking about? So I, I really struggled with that. And I, I am a very empirical sort of show me the evidence. Like mm. if you think this helps, show me a double blinded peer reviewed study that, that demonstrates it. And so I had to balance or I had to hold in, in opposition that approach to the world which i think again i think is pretty common among endurance athletes they tend not to generalize but they tend to be a fairly analytical species i had to balance that with my own experiences that we've just been talking about of like oh all of a sudden i got a lot faster how did that happen and so then when i came across tim noakes's research about the central governor model this idea that your limits are dictated by your brain trying to prevent you from reaching the edge of your physical capacities rather than that you actually reach your physical capacities. It made sense to me because I, 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 you know, I, I couldn't find any other way of reconciling this, the, the, the feeling of what it's like at the end of a race, the feeling that you've really hit your limits with the reality that my, obviously on, you know, when I ran four flat or 401, I thought I was going as hard as I could. When I ran 352, I also thought it did, actually didn't feel that different. I wasn't more tired at the end. So how do you explain those those differences? And I think it's um, it's a, a, th even through the writing Endure, which delves into this stuff a lot. I went, I gave a talk uh, not long after the book came out, and someone stuck up their hand at the end saying, "You know, I read the last chapter, and it sounded to me like you actually still don't believe it. Like the the end of the book is like saying something about I can't remember the line, but it's something like there's more. You know, when you're pushing as hard as you can, there's more in there if you can if you can convince yourself to believe it or something." And it's I thought about it and it was one of those moments where I, you had this, I had the sense that, oh, this someone else on the exterior of my brain was able to perceive what I was thinking better than I was. And I realized that, yeah, you're right. Even in writing the book, I was still, I, I still am skeptical. I'm st I still have trouble accepting the idea that, um, that, that, that our thoughts have such a, a, an important role to play. So it's, it's something I, st I struggle with to this day, to be honest. Yeah, I, I would say um, being that you've spent your career and you have that analytical bent, as you describe, and I can totally relate to that. And I remember back when I was racing on the professional triathlon circuit, mixing with some of the best athletes, and some of them were completely raw and intuitive and non-scientific minded. And it seemed, especially to me, analyzing the situation, that that could be uh, considered an ideal competitive mindset where you're just out there and you're, you know, you're tapping into these raw instincts. And if you get your ass kicked, you um, say F that I can't wait till the next race. And instead of breaking down your nutritional macronutrients and the three week buildup to see if, you know, there's some area that you can identify. I wonder if you've uh, mixed with, 
you know, athletes with a vastly different mindset and approach than you and, and see any compare and contrast to what represents kind of the ideal competitive disposition? hundred percent. Well, okay. Lots of things to say. One is I don't think there's an ideal competitive disposition. There's, mm. there's many roads to roll, right? Mm. But there are different, there are, there are some very different ones. And I will say once I got into being a science journalist and where my, my sort of main job was let's look at studies testing all the theories that athletes have about what makes them faster. And let's look at the evidence and let's debunk all these mistaken beliefs. I pretty quickly came to the conclusion, I'm glad I'm not seriously competitive anymore because this is the worst thing you can possibly do is undermine all your beliefs in the things that make you faster. Mm. Because I, I, I have that experience with like the one you described. And in fact, I had a coach um, in the early 2000s. I trained with uh, a group run by Matt Centrowitz Sr., um, the, the former American 5,000-meter record holder, the father of the 2016 Olympic 1,500-meter champion. And he, he just had a completely different approach than I did. He was an extremely intuitive athlete. He was a very talented, uh, intuitive coach, rather. And as an athlete, he'd been an intuitive athlete. He ran, he qualified for the Olympics as a college student in the 70s. And he wasn't interested in, you know, let's do this kind of interval at this percentage of VO2 max in order to optimize this physiological system. He was very much just kind of feeling it. And I remember he would, he, he would, uh, <laughs> let me tell a couple of stories because <laughs> one was, He'd tell me to go out and do a fart lick. And I'd say, well, how long should the fart lick? I don't know what, what, whatever, you know, make sure it's a good, good effort. You need to get, you know, get some mileage in. Say, okay, well, how, how long should the hard surges be? And how long should the recoveries be? You'd say, well, go hard until you feel like you've pushed hard enough. Then take a break till you recover. Then go hard again. And my, you know, my head would be on the verge of exploding. I'd be like, no, no, I need to know how many minutes I'm going hard. How can I know how hard to go until I know how many minutes I'm supposed to go and until how, how much the rest is? But he, he, he was trying to teach me something that I wasn't quite ready to learn at the time to, 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 to feel where my limits are and then to step back from them and to feel them again. Yeah. And, and the, the other story just on that note from that, you know, he had a couple, while I was there, he had a couple runners qualify for the NCAA championships, a couple of milers. And so before they left, he was he pulled them over during practice one day to give them some tactical advice. And I was since I was a competitive miler at a similar level, I sort of I was in that group, sort of listening to his advice to them before going to the NCAA championships. Which and fifteen hundred meter races are, are famously tactical. Usually, it's not just the gun goes and everyone runs as fast as they can. Especially in the qualifying rounds, there's a, a lot of like it'll go slow, it'll go fast. There'll be a move, there'll be a counter move. Everyone's watching everyone else in a big pack, and then there'll be a a big move that you can't miss and then a counter move. And so knowing when to go. And so Co coach Centrowitz was trying to explain to these guys, here's what you need to do. And it wasn't like you go, you run at this pace until 600 mm. to go 600, you go into gear four. And then at 300 to go, you got to go into gear five. He was like, you know, when you walk into a bar, <laughs> you can sense there's going to be a fight soon. You can just sense in the, and I was thinking like, no, hell no! I've never <laughs> seen a fight in my life. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know anything about Chuck. But he's like, yeah, you, you go in a bar, you can sense, you, you know, someone is gonna, someone's gonna start something soon. There's just that electricity in the air, and you gotta feel it. Don't, don't go too soon, but wait. You just gotta wait until the moment, just before you know the first punch is gonna be thrown. Bam! You throw your punch, and I was like, I love that advice. I don't know how to follow it. But the the, the, uh, the the two guys, Sean Duffy and Sean O'Brien, who were great milers for American, they they learned to trust 
Coach Centrowitz to just sort of, and they sort of got in tune with them and they were, they were great runners as a result. And they, but they learned this intuitive approach that, that escaped me. And so I think mm. it's not to say there was nothing that could have been optimized or changed about the program there, but there was an important let I, in retrospect, I look back and even at the time I had the sense there's a language here. There's a lesson here that, that, that is hard for me to learn and that I would be better if I could learn it. And that's, and that's to do with sort of being able to feel where your limits are and, and rather than letting them be externally imposed by some idea of how fast you should be able to run. Yeah, and also that that fear you described when you got up to the big leagues really quickly without that proper psychological preparation. And so, of course, you feel like you don't deserve to be standing next to Graham Hood and shaking his hand. Good luck, man. I'll see you at the finish line. Um, and I think most people can relate to that. And I'm, I'm thinking of my, um, my, my time that I shared with Lance Armstrong when he was a triathlete. And then uh, later during his Tour de France career, I wrote a book about him and had some time to interview him and things. And he sort of projected the opposite where even when he was a kid, and if you know his story, he came in, started racing against the top pros in the world in triathlon when he was 15, 16 years old. And, you know, I, I'd meet with this, this guy at the races and he was absolutely fearless and he had no reverence for uh, even the, the greatest athletes who were my heroes that I'd worked hard to finally get up to be able to compete with them. And it was such an honor to compete with these great guys. He was like, oh, those guys are wussies. I'm going to take it out hard on the bike and make everyone suffer. And he'd, <laughs> he'd verbalize these things as a punk kid. And he came off uh, poorly in many ways with the media at first because he was so brash and cocky. Um, but to me, it was such a, a rich experience to to look at this guy who was not just blow hard. He deeply, you know, thought and believed that and embodied that persona. And it seemed like, um, and, and I talk about this in, in the book I wrote about him that, you know, I asked him, um, do you feel those, those nervousness and that pressure when you're leading this team? And in fact, the entire organization is counting on you winning the tour. And he goes, no. And I go, why not? <laughs> you mean, you're the man, you have the most pressure of anybody. And he goes, oh, no, no. The guys who have the real pressure are the ones fighting for their jobs to be the domestique and they got to hand me the water bottle or they get fired. He says, I'm <laughs> I'm the guy who prepares properly. And so when I go to the tour, I'm not afraid to win and I'm not afraid to lose either. And I thought like, what else can you say that's better competitive temperament than just being absolutely fearless of all outcomes and you certainly embodied that because you were fearless to make a nine second PR. Maybe the timer helped the poor French translation or whatever they did. Uh, but, you know, somehow you you broke through to that realm, at least temporarily, and, and got to float in the atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, you could think of these things. Our traits are not fixed in in concrete, so we can we can exist on different ends of that spectrum. But if if Lance is on one extreme spectrum of confidence and let's say when I got to my first Olympic trials, I was on the other spectrum of thinking I don't belong there. I would say that most people, like you could say at that Olympic trials, I thought I didn't really belong there. I, I kind of flew, I was not competitive. I was not as ready to race with those guys. But in a lot of cases, and I think this is sort of a life insight, it, even when we are, we do belong, the, the, the most of us, it's more common to err on the side of you know, the imposter syndrome of, mm, of, of mm -hmm. feeling like you don't belong even when you do. Right. What are you and doing so, on the bestseller list, Alex? Come on. These are, yeah, you know, it, John it, Grisham. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And in, 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 in every context, you know, this is, this is a, a very common thing. And I, you know, it, it has repercussions, I think, like, in part, it can make you work harder. It can fuel you to, to, to make sure you prove you do belong. 
but I, it, it, I think it can be a real drain on your energy if you're constantly worried that mm. that actually people are going to discover that you're you, you don't belong there, that you're not you don't belong on that start line. You're not as good as your competitors. Where in, re- in reality, often you, you you are and you do. Uh, so you talked yourself into that. It took you a year, and then you got back to the nationals and, and placed highly. But then you described uh, hitting that plateau, which seems to be expected because your plateau is a national caliber runner who's training extremely hard and right on the razor edge of uh, success or failure by by definition, trying trying to hit that highest point. Um, do you think there's now a genetic component or some other um, missing link uh, that allowed you to, you had tremendous genetic talent to be able to run up to 344 and then why didn't you break El Garouge's record since you had all that exercise physiology background yeah so so I ended up running 342 just I have to set the record straight on that. okay <laughs> the next so that's, year. So the that's next a legit sub four minute mile for you American listeners uh, if you if you go to the official world athletics conversion tables my 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 1500 PR works out to a four flat point zero one mile and I, oh, will, come I, will, on. I will take that to my grave uh, I, I I will swear to my grave that Personally, my endurance profile is is stronger than my speed, so I would have run three fifty nine point nine. Well, now but, we have the, um, the 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 springy spike, so you're a three fifty seven uh, miler by today's like definition. Right? Miler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no. That, so let me start with the excuses. Um, I, I ran three forty two uh, in in ninety seven when I was twenty one. I got oh. injured the next year. And I missed the next three three years. Well, I missed the next two track seasons completely. And I just was starting to come back running like 20 miles a week in that third year. And when I came back, I never quite got I I never quite got my snap back. I didn't I ran 343 a few years later and I ran a 1352 5K. So as at a slight, I was basically at a lower, I never got back to the level I was at in 97 uh as a 21-year-old. Um so I can I can blame a little bit that I had this knee problem that kept me out for a couple of years, but so I think even that the fitness I was at in '97 had I gotten into a fast race, um, maybe there was a 3:39 there or something like that, but there was no 3:35 and there was definitely no 3:32 and there was 100% no 3:29 or 3:25. Like there's, you know, I I'm at level whatever. 14 and I'm, you know, we're talking about level 60. I'm, I'm a long way from those. And so genetics. Yeah. A lot of it was genetics. Um, but I guess what I would, if, if, if you, if, if I sort of push myself to think about this, I would say that genetics had very little to do with where I ended up on the spec. Like, let's say genetics is going to say, Alex was never going to run 332. I don't think my genetics precluded me from running, let's say, 335 or something, mm-hmm. which is still a long, long way from what I actually ran. And there's so then why didn't I run faster? Well, I was an extremely nervous racer. I was mm-hmm. too cautious. I went up. I never I, I all of my races as a once I got to that level, started out slow and finished fast. I never I you know, I ran my 342 on 40 miles a week, which is really quite low for uh, for that level of running. It's not that I was stupid. I understood that 80 miles a week would be better, um, but I had a lot of trouble getting up that high without injury. Like, in fact, I was trying to raise my mileage when I got injured in, and was out for a few years. I, and I don't think genetics is what explains why I got injured. I don't think that was impossible. If you gave me 10 lives to live, 
in some of those lives, I would have figured out how to raise my mileage without getting hurt. I would have found a different pair of shoes or a different place to run or a different, you know. So I think I, I, I'm 100% a believer in genetics. Like there, there's just no doubt. Like you can, you know, I went to my my daughter's elementary school cross country a few days ago. And you can see they're, they're, they're six years old and there's differences in how people run. And those, they're not perfect predictors, but they, they do track with, you know, who has the potential to, to be really fast someday and who doesn't. So genetics is real. But in my case, I would say genetics wasn't the ultimate factor that dictated where right. I, where I stopped. And for most of us, that I think that's, that's the case. We, the, we don't get, I, I'm, I think there are very few people walking on this planet who can say, yeah, that time I ran my best time, that's as, as fast as my genes would permit me to run. Mm-hmm. Right. It's very difficult to reach your genetic potential, which is 99.9% faster than your PR because all things perfect. Yeah. And and geez, 21, I mean, um, you know, you had another decade, especially these days where people prolong their careers for progression. I did did try it. I I did try. So I missed a few key years. I tried really hard from, you know, 25 to 28. And I, you know, when I was 28, I got it. I was probably in the shape of my life, I would say. And I, got a sacral, a stress fracture in my sacrum three months before that year's Olympic trials. And that was kind of the end of my track day that I said, I've, I've had enough. I couldn't, I couldn't stay healthy, but yeah. so I, I, it's, it's not that, it's not that I gave up. I tried and I just, I yeah. couldn't run as fast as I did. And, and again, that's another thing I think that fuels my interest in trying to understand the limits of endurance. Because when I was 26, I was doing workouts that I could never have dreamed of when I was 21, but I wasn't racing as fast. And so was I a little bit overtrained to go back to, you know, a point you, you, you raised uh, before I started rambling several questions ago, um, like maybe I was pushing too hard in, in the workouts or, or, or maybe there was something different in my, you know, my confidence was different or hmm. whatever the case may be like, uh, but I, the, you could, I sometimes think about, you know, workout to race conversion. Everyone has a different, you know, if one person does five by a mile at such and such a time, you know, they're going to race at a certain level. But someone else doing that workout might race at a completely different level. And what determines those those conversions? How do you how do you know uh, how the relationship between what you can do in training and then that sort of magic alchemy of racing, where you can always or hopefully always get a little more out of your body than you can during workouts? I want to tell you about WildHealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. 
Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Right. And there's examples of those, what do you call them, training superhero, where they're not even close to their competitive potential and apparently due to excess energy expenditure in workouts and those overtraining patterns or that overly competitive, you know, lack of regulating your competitive intensity. Yeah. And it's hard to know what, like how much of that is they're, they're tired, right? Like they're, they're not recovered from the workouts and how much of that is like something is more subtle that they're, they're digging mm. into a, a, some sort of, it's not the energy stores, but some sort of mental, stores that you don't have you you know you can't go to the sixth gear twice a week and then expect to to really be able to harness it in a race too if you're if you're so i i got you know i don't have the answers here but i think that the questions point us in some interesting directions as to how do you how do you figure out what that balance is of pushing hard enough but not too hard uh kevin young when he broke the world record 1992 400 meter hurdles which held for a long time until recently he was working with my friend dr greenberg and one of the one of the um psycho-emotional things he was uh, trying to clear was fear of success because a lot of athletes when they're training so hard and they're they're living living and breathing their sport and their competitive uh, goals uh, there is a, an unknown or i guess unacknowledged fear of what happens when i do reach all my dreams then what and you get that letdown, which is often talked about the post Iron Man blues, they call it or what have you. Um, so maybe maybe deep down people are afraid to, um, you know, they, they put their their goal time on the sticky note and obsess about it, but are afraid to actually uh, transcend. It's a, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things that sounds so funny, but I think there's some truth to the idea of fear of success. But I think I, I, something I've always thought is that um, one of the one of the ways that running has prepared me for life is the the realization that achieving your goals or meeting your dreams that's not that's not that doesn't you know you don't just sort of magically shimmer up into paradise when you like so when i ran 352 i exceeded all of my dreams and it was great and i loved it but a week later, I was, you know, life was back to normal. And it's like, okay, what's next? What can, what can I, as soon, as soon as you you get there, you're wondering what's next. And that's, that's a kind of, um, it's good and bad, right? Like it, mm. it keeps you going, but you, you, you know, I think we all, many of us, let's say, need to work on enjoying the, you know, the victories when they come, as opposed to always thinking about the next thing. But I, I know when I think about career or even relationships and all these things, I've, I think running has prepared me well for the idea that even if everything I'm dreaming of comes true, life will go on the next day and I'll have to think of other dreams because you, you can't just, you, you can't just sort of float on that cloud indefinitely. And so whether you, whether you reach your running goals or your, your athletic goals or whether you don't, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm descending into cliches here, but ultimately it's, you know, it is the, the journey, not the destination because 
I, I, I was lucky enough to meet some of my running goals. Mm-hmm. It was great, but it does, you, you can't live on that for the rest of your life. And I suppose if you are able to appreciate the journey as the, the essence of what you're doing, um, according to some of this research that you, that you cite in the book, um, it's possible to smile your way, um, self-talk your way into a reduction in perceived exertion. Uh, in other words, I'm, I love these workouts so much, irrespective of my goals and my, my competitive, uh, you know, measurements, um, that they're going to be more enjoyable and less, less strenuous. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is, you know, t- tying it back to what we were talking about earlier about, um, as an analytical person learning to, uh, being willing to accept that there's, uh, a role for the brain. The self-talk literature is the one that for me helped to, to sort of turn the corner for me that, can, you can do randomized trials of having people work on saying different things to themselves in the middle of some, you know, an endurance, a time trial or whatever. And lo and behold, they have, a, they have an effect on performance. What you're telling yourself, it alters your perceived efforts. So if you're sitting there telling yourself, this is really hard, this is really hard, this is so bad, I hate it. Then it's not surprising that if, if, some, if it, you know, your perception of how hard you're working gets higher. And if you've got a big grimace on your face to show how hard you're working, that you feel like you're working harder. And as a result, you slow down. And whereas if you're telling yourself, ah, this is this is where I want to be. I, I, there's no place in the world that I'd rather be. I chose to be here. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but that's that's what I've chosen. And it's okay, I can deal with it. Then you're like, oh yeah, this is only, this is six out of 10, it's tolerable. I can keep going and you, and you do. And so those studies that have actually shown an effect, they they help uh, convince the the analytical part of my mind that, yeah, this isn't just a whole bunch of sort of touchy feely feel good stuff. This is this is science. Yeah, I guess it could even count if you're thinking silly things like uh, I just want to come second to last. I don't want to be last, or um, I'm not going to lose to this jerk. He's wearing sneakers and I have the springy $250 shoes. Um, it, it'll it'll like propel you forward, even if it's sort of a a negative or a, a, a simplistic uh, notion like that. And I think that, you know, it's definitely worth acknowledging that, that everyone's wired differently, right? Like some people, some people, and anytime I discuss the sort of the idea of positive self-talk and, 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 you know, smiling <laughs> and stuff, I'll, 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 I'll run into someone who's like, personally, I run my best times when I'm mad, you know, when I'm pissed off and angry at somebody. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, I, I'm not saying that's not true that everyone's different. And, and even like, response to pressure. So for me, I was someone mm. who got pretty wound up before races. Mm. And so for me saying, all I need to do is come second last. So I'm not the asshole who come, came last. That was probably a, a good approach for me, you know, at least in the context of a, a, a field of runners, all of whom were fast and that, you know, I, I, that staying with would be good because it took the pressure off. I wasn't worried about covering the moves of the, the guys who were in for second and third. For other people, or let's say for a stronger runner, that would have been a terrible strategy <laughs> for someone who's trying to win the race. If you're just saying, all I need to do is come second last, you can underperform. So there's a sort of infinite uh, variety of ways that your own personal psychology can interact with the specific situation where you're racing. But the, the, the sort of the common denominator is you have to find ways of, um, you know, of not necessarily encouraging yourself, but of, of creating space for yourself to, to push without being scared of the consequences of whether things don't go as well as you hoped. So 
uh, back to this idea of okay, we're 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 going to uh, embrace our power and our mindsets are uh, the 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 arbiter of fatigue in the body. We can um, self talk our way and smile our way to reduce perceived exertion. And then um, here's Alex with another injury to the to the sacrum, ending his running career and all the setbacks I've had, where I can reflect back and go, oh, geez. Um, I love high jumping so much in the old man division that I, I uh, busted up my uh, my heel and now I need to have a, a minor procedure and I'm not going to be jumping for a while. And it was clearly because I was out there unleashing my competitive intensity to the extreme that my body couldn't take it. And so the central governor does fine when I'm at my 15th jump in practice and I know I have five more in me because I'm I'm so enthused about it. Uh, but then where do you put the uh, the governor on? In, in general everyday life so that you're not um you know uh, leaving your best uh results in the in the training ground yeah i mean you know if i had the perfect answer to that i'd be a millionaire obviously and lots of people are trying to sell us on the their products that will monitor training and recovery i think one thing i would say is i would distinguish between the discomfort or pain of effort and the discomfort of an injury um, and it's not it's not always easy to tell those two things apart. I mean, if if as a runner, if if every time you felt an ache or a pain or an evil, <laughs> you're like, well, I'm going to be smart and I'm going to take a couple of days off until this ache clears up. Yeah. You would run ten miles a year, right? Like it's you 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 have to be willing to push through discomfort sometimes, even acute physical discomfort. But I I think it's a little I I think it's the central governor, we can talk about it in the context of um, pushing through the desire to stop, but acute pain localized to one particular part of your body, that we have to not rely on the central governor to protect us from. That we have to use yeah. our, our conscious cognitive resources to say, all right, how many days have I had this discomfort? Is it getting better or worse? Is it increasing during exercise or is it sort of numbing during exercise? Mm. Is it worse when I get up in the morning? And, you know, and even if you know, even if you're paying attention to all these things, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know whether you can push through things. But, but I think we have to take active ownership of uh, the kind of mechanics of keeping our bodies working. And again, it depends, you know, if you're training for a race, a local race then you just want to do the best you can versus if you're trying to make the olympics you might make different choices on mm. the cost benefit the risk reward ratio of taking a day off versus pushing through something mm. and, um, these days I, I i try to be i you know I, I still run i still compete but it's not you know central to my um life and so if something starts to hurt then i I'm more inclined to just back off. But at the same time, as we're talking today, like I've made, I'm going to be running some, the provincial and maybe national masters cross country championships this year mm. for fun. I have a heat, my heel's been bugging me for the last couple of days. I suspect it's probably a plantar fasciitis or something like that. But I have a big workout this afternoon. The, my weekly workout with my friends, I go down and we do, you know, we do a good cross country workout and I'm going to go to the workout. And there's, there is a voice in my head that's saying, Alex, you, you know, if you let plantar fasciitis become like established, it's going to be a pain in the neck or a pain in the heel for a long time. Don't don't play around with this. But at the same time, I'm like, there's less than a month. There's three weeks until the 
the cross country championships. Uh, this is this is the key workout. This is the, the the prime time. So these are hard hard trade offs to make. But I guess the 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 key thing is I'm not just relying on my body or my brain to to automatically know that this is the the when I need to shut down or and I'm not pushing through any I'm, I'm not like I'm not pushing through a sort of defense mechanism I'm just I'm coolly and calmly weighing the pros and cons and maybe acknowledging that I'm not as rational as I think that I'm pulled <laughs> along by my desires and he's, he's looking from the 30,000 foot view okay there goes that guy with this stiff heel running another workout with his buddies this is uh yeah the 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 don't do what I'm doing do what I, I know what I should be doing I'm just choosing not to do it so maybe that's a different form of, uh, of not central governor, the reverse cent- the central idiot or whatever. Central breaker. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it amazingly, it seems like even at the highest elite level of sport, um, we're not doing a great job at keeping the athletes healthy. And it could be part and parcel to trying to shave those tents off the existing records and get the gold medal. Uh, but I'm also curious if we're missing, you know, a giant uh, big picture insight where, you know, these multi-million dollar NBA basketball players or football players are rushed back onto the court uh, because in the name of being professionals and they, they don't want to miss too many games. And um, same with the Olympic athletes. And we had the great 800 meter runners from America that were picking up medals and looking like they were, you know, marching toward the world record. And then they, they can't even get on the track to try the trials to make the next team, um, due to injuries and, and other setbacks. And, um, I don't know, what do you think? Is it, is it going to be par for the course or is there, if you dreamed up and you were the, the, um, made the, uh, the coach of the, uh, Olympic team, would you do something different? Yeah, I'm a little bit pessimistic. So I've I've had this conversation recently in the context of the new breed of thick ultra cushion running shoes, and, mm. and someone was asking me like, "Oh, well, do you think if people are training in these, people train in these, you know, cushier shoes, uh, will it reduce injuries? Will it allow?" And and my my response was, "Okay, maybe, maybe not. You can you can argue it in both ways. Whether it's protective of injury, you can argue that maybe it's going to change your biomechanics in a way that's going to make you more susceptible to injury." Or maybe the cushion, reduced cushioning is going to make you less susceptible injury. But the bigger picture view is that let's say hypothetically that running in big cushion shoes allows you it, it reduces stress on your body. Then runners are going to train more, and they're going to train. And there's a concept called risk homeostasis, which is mm-hmm. the idea that we sort of have a everyone's different, but you, each person has a sort of level of risk they're willing to tolerate. And if you make, you know, the, the classic study on this is anti-lock brakes, which was done in, I think, somewhere in Germany on taxi cabs. They installed anti-lock brakes to see if it would reduce accidents. And it didn't. It just had the the, the cab drivers drive faster. Um, so <laughs> they, they, could, they were able to go faster and they ended up mm. operating at the same level of risk. Now, risk that's not to say that, like this 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 argument gets extended to bike helmets to say that oh well therefore bike helmets don't work because people will just bike faster and i'm like no i don't believe that we have perfect risk homeostasis you can do things that make you safer that you don't fully compensate for by even if there is a little bit of maybe you, you bike a little faster with a bike helmet but i still believe bike helmets are uh although the evidence is murkier than you'd think i still believe mm. they, they they have likely benefits to protection but getting back to the, the injury question i think once the stakes are sufficiently high, as they are in professional sport, um, the athletes at the top level are not interested in um, 
self-actualization or like i wonder how good i can be with well not taking any risks mm -hmm. they want to do whatever it takes to win and if a shoe and, and so they're making decisions that that maybe give them a 30 percent chance of getting injured any given year if a shoe lowers that they'll just start training harder till the back up to 30 percent um not in a perfect way and that's not that's not to say that people can't make better decisions um but but i think yeah i mean fundamentally with sport we're at a level now of full professionalization where the only limit on how hard people train or how much time they spend or how much many resources they pour into their training is the point of diminishing returns mm -hmm. and that point of di diminishing returns is probabilistic so if let's say you say you decide i'm going to stop at this level of training because then i can be pretty confident i'm going to make to the start line in one piece well you've got 10 competitors Mm. who are all going to train at a higher level and eight of them might get injured because they're idiots they've they're, they're doing a risky thing but two of them just by the luck of the draw are going to make it through and so if you want to get or three of them let's say if you want to make it on the podium ultimately you have to train at that that self-destructive level of training because there's enough people doing it that some of them are going to survive and so it becomes a probabilistic through and this is a very pessimistic view of the world but, oh you're, but, you're I, describing I, the ncaa uh distance uh, programs at all the schools where there's uh, yeah. 20 kids and uh, seven of them make it through cross-country injury-free and four of them excel to their potential and then um it, it's like survival of the fittest in the worst way and it's yeah, playing and, out and, everywhere i mean it's not it's not even a it's not even a um a bad comment it's an accurate description of how we operate yeah i i mean i, I think you'd be any honest NCAA coach would admit that, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. <laughs> because unfortunately, you can see that it's irrational for an individual runner to train that way. But like it or not, it's it's if, if you have a program and the goal of the program is to win, that's a rational way to run the program. That's, I mean, yes, we, I mean, we all love the stories of the carefully developed runners mm. who nurtured and protected. And a lot of coaches are honestly trying to do that for sure. But um, ultimately, if you want to, I mean, if you, if you have the raw material and you can train them hard enough, then you don't need everyone to survive if you want to just <laughs> score five. All right. Um, well, go, let's go try to find some honest coaches to admit they're they're grinding <laughs> these guys through a, a meat market. Uh, so we talked about genetics a little bit. And now we've talked about how, um, you know, the elite athletes have been pushing the limits for a long time. And I'm wondering if you see um, that we've are bumping up against the ceiling with some of the world records, such as El Garouche holding this record now for 24, 25 years. He was a unique genetic talent. Um, he trained harder than probably any human ever and lived that monastic lifestyle, which is no longer existent. I think today's elite athletes are pumping up their social media in between workouts rather than uh, laying in a dorm and uh, reading a passage from scripture or something. Um, same with Usain Bolt being 6'5 and having those excellent mechanics and all that. So um, I wonder what your reflection is on that. I guess I'm talking about track and field uh, mostly because it's so easy to quantify. Yeah, I think we can extend from track to all other activities, but track is one where you can see that you can plot the charts and you can see, I mean, the idea that we're in an era of diminishing returns is, uh, I think, pretty pretty hard to, to argue against. We've been in an era of diminishing returns for a long time. And what do you um, mean by that? Like, 
no one's going to break the record by large amounts. Oh, right. It's not like if you look at the curve in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it's like people were taking chunks off world records left, right, and center. And then it it, it does. It, we're, at this point, it's kind of level. You, you, Except you the hurdles, the 400 hurdles. Well, they, well and, that, and that, that's not <laughs> the only exception. Level. Because yeah. before the 2008 Olympics, people were writing that. I mean, this article gets written. People, scientists write studies every five years or so showing that progress is leveling off and we're very close to ultimate limits. And then it's just like, well, except that Usain Bolt changed, uh, you know, broke the world record by a cumulative total of, I can't remember, 1.5% or something like that, something enormous. So, and you can retroactively say, oh, well, Bolt was a freak of nature. Well, it's like, that's that's who sets world records, this freaks of nature. And yes, he had tall legs, but we had a very mature world record. It's not like tall people didn't exist until 2007, right? Like we had lots of tall people trying to sprint. Nobody set the world record. All of a sudden, Bolt took it to a different level and others followed. And then we can look at marathon running. It's like, or all distance running. The shoes came in in 2017-ish. There's been a huge change in a whole world records at basically every distance. Um, and you can you can say, well, that doesn't count as progress because that's that's um, you know that's technology. So like, yeah, well, there was technology. I mean, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. But there was also technological change when all weather tracks came in and you know uh, fiberglass pole vaults, like. The, the history of progress in world records has always been intertwined with changes in the context and in the technology. So, or, or you could say, well, what happened in the, you know, well, there were a lot of world records in the eighties. Uh, it's like, well, yeah, well, there were a lot of drugs in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of world records, you know, in the Eastern Bloc, and not just the Eastern Bloc for sure. In the nineties, there were a lot of world records. Well, there was no EPO test in the nineties and there was EPO. So it's like, we're approaching limits, except that every time we've, you know, we've never actually hit the limits because there's always something. And so I guess what I would say is there's this sort of hypothetical um, pure idea of pure progress. It's like mm. humans right. have gotten faster only by wanting it more or training smarter or doing something. different. And, and I think, I don't think we've necessarily maxed that out. Like I think, especially for complicated to train like endurance events are maybe um there's more variables you can twist in terms of figuring out a way that oh maybe the norwegians have figured out that doing four threshold workouts a week really is a better way and and you're going to get some some progress but so there's there's some wiggle room there but i i think what we're in in the real world what we're going to see is that world records continue to get broken there will often be an explanation for why they got broken whether it's a change in rules, a change in technology, a change in nutrition, uh, you know, now you can get your carbs in a hydrogel that allows you to take more or whatever. So if you disc- if you want to say those don't count as progress, then yeah, progress is going to be a little more rare. Mm. But I think I, I never would have predicted that shoes would allow runners to get a couple percent faster. Like I, I li- it literally never crossed my mind until it happened. And so that makes me open to the idea that something else that's, somehow within the rules but has never crossed my mind might uh open up new performance vistas in in one adventure or another i guess within the rules or um right beneath the rules when we're talking about the state of the union in doping do you have any insights on that these days i was fascinated to read tyler hamilton's book about microdosing epo every night with a little pinch and then testing clean in the morning it's like okay well um 
we we see people climbing as fast or faster than Lance Armstrong up Alpe d'Huez and the measured climbs. And, and so um, to me, that's um, kind of an indication. We had some good genetic talent and hard training there with um, the, the previous era. And if they're matching that now, I would I would have to project. I don't know. What do you think? Same with same with track and field question. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, we're almost beating Flojo's records and some of the other people who were um, pretty well confirmed to be in, competing in the doping era, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and in Flojo's case with a, a five meter a second tailwind when she's yeah. hundred meter yeah. record. Zero anyway. point zero. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. oh my mistake. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I call Elaine Thompson the fastest female of all time because um, that you got to throw things out. I mean, someone needs to have the guts to do that. Come on, Sebastian Coe, if you're listening. Exactly. That yeah. That that that's a, a whole another rabbit hole. Yeah, doping. Look, it's it's always going to be there. Um, in the same sense that it doesn't matter what rules you make against stealing, there's still shoplifting. And just because people <laughs> shoplift, it doesn't mean we should say it just it, you know not that you made this argument, but does, just because people still shoplift doesn't mean you should say, well, we tried getting rid of stealing, we should just make it legal because it's mm. part of you know. No, we it's it's a never ending fight. People will try mm. and cheat. We can just stop. Them. Um, how are we doing in this fight against cheating? I think the biological passport has narrowed the 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 bandwidth available to dopers you know you, you can't just be on the industrial strength diesel now or at least it's much harder to do that um so i i i i'm moderately optimistic in that <laughs> sense the fact that runners now are runners and cyclists are sort of um performing as well or pretty close to as well as some you know admitted uh doped up previous generations I, I don't know. I can, you know, maybe it's just they're going to bed earlier and mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, using their foam roller more religiously or whatever the case may be. Like, it's hard to know. And, and just in order, just in order to preserve sanity and to preserve interest in sport, I have to give people the benefit of the doubt and let, you know, there's, unless there's a certain amount of smoke that starts to, you know, smoke beyond, I think the performance, performance on its own is, is a tricky way of, of, there is some interesting research with using performance trajectories to identify people who should mm. undergo more more targeted testing and, and i think that's that's great yeah but, charlie um, francis drew those graphs and it was widely widely uh ridiculed remember the the spikes in the graph when he was showing the progression of world records oh, claiming that everybody was doping and like what does this guy know you know well he knew everything it turns uh, out he knew everything yeah i you know so uh you know i, I guess to, to sum up the open thing i i think it's always going to be part of it hopefully the balance has shifted a little bit compared to where it was in the 80s and 90s where i think things were pretty and i guess actually in the 2000s too but yeah yeah you have to i mean you have to keep your head not very too deeply in the sand even if you mm -hmm. want to be optimistic you have to acknowledge that every every performance is subject to the possibility that it was that it was cheating and that's that's a, yeah, yeah i like to um i like to make the assumption that the playing field is level and so if we have eight lanes in the finals of an explosive event like the 100 meters and there's doping suspicions because someone breaks a record, I'd like to think that all eight participants have equal access to whatever advantages are they're getting. I mean, <laughs> same with looking at, uh, you know, the NFL, Miami's playing Cleveland and these guys are big and fast and strong. So I'd like to assume that uh, whatever they're doing in the weight room and with their needles is is equal. It's got to it's pretty pretty reasonable assumption to make i i i i'll take a slightly more uh maybe um 
nationalistic point of view, no, Canadians are clean. Yeah, well, that's that's for sure. But I'll take a slightly more delusional approach, let's say, which is that I like I like to imagine that there's some athletes who are choosing to compete clean, and that little by little we'll keep chipping away, even if it's mm -hmm. retroactively, at the ones who are found to have cheated, and 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 that uh, virtue will be rewarded. I think that's not a assumption that can probably bear intense scrutiny in the real world, but I I, I sleep better hoping that that some that, that it's not just that everyone's doping equally but some people are doing it right and mm. um and you know you, you yeah I, it's hard to just do a sniff test and figure out who's doing that other than yeah you get nationalistic involved i know the canadians are doing it right because i met that person's cousin's aunt's roommate's friend mm. you know six years ago but um yeah i hope i hope some people are I, I know some people are doing it right i know some people are doing it right and and competing at the highest levels Oh, for sure. And I had Shelby Houlihan on the show and it was such a heartbreaking story to, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm deeply convinced that uh, all her character shows is that she's, you know, into the highest ideals of sport and appears to be um, a tragic victim of the system that's trying to go out there and perhaps we've gone overboard when you talk about that balance of power in the 80s the the um the the dopers own the the world sports scene and now perhaps the anti-doping agencies are um you know causing some some tragic fallout from doing the best they can to test at higher higher levels of scrutiny that might not you know line up well with reality yeah and, and you know honestly i don't have a, a perfect solution to that because you can't have you can't have zero tolerance without having mm. innocent victims and there's no such thing as you know a complete lack of false positives and so i don't know how you identify those and i don't know how you deal with it it's 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 one of those problems that it's like even if i was you know unilaterally appointed the absolute king of of uh you know anti-doping or, or of world athletics or something like that i don't know that i have a great solution to that i don't know how you uh come up with rule because you we've come up with rules that can be applied impartially to try and mm -hmm. solve those problems. I do think, yeah, accountability is important and um, world anti-doping agencies should definitely have uh, a, an obligation to accountability and to uh, explain the procedures, but it's um, no, no test is perfect. That's, and that's, that's, it's tricky. I do like your shoplifting analogy. I think that's the first time I've had a shoplifting associated with doping, but it's great. You got to keep fighting the battle and put on more cameras and follow them out to the parking lot, whatever. You, got, you, know, yeah. you can't just it, lie down. Yeah, just assume that, oh, well, we, we tried getting rid of shoplifting. And I guess we should make it, make it say it's okay. It's, no, no. It, it sucks that people still do it, but we've got to keep fighting it. Alex Hutchinson, great stuff. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, Listeners are going to have to grab that book, Endure. It's a wonderful read, wonderful listen. And where else uh, can we connect with you or got any exciting projects you want to talk about? Or, Well, th I, uh, thanks so much for this conversation, Brad. I, I, I'm sorry. Many of my answers were extremely rambling, but uh, you asked interesting questions. That's, and we, that's how we roll, man. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. So probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, anytime I write an article in a place like outside, I'll, I'll, I post it there. So that's the, the sort of one-stop one shop. Um, I'm working on another book, but by God, it's going slowly. So it'll be a while before it gets out. Um, Believe in I'm, yourself, man. You can do it. You belong that's there. That's right. Yeah. I'm at the 401 stage. Hopefully I'll get to the 350 okay. stage I love it. Yeah. before too long. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Dun, 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 dun. 
I'm pleased to present BRAD grass-fed whey protein isolate superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the super fuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.